Welcome to Feed Auto 2 at Conversation Pace, Episode 2. My name is Brian Rossetti. I'm the founder of Feed Auto 2, coaching platform for runners of all levels. Our podcast brings you the stories behind athletes and coaches who've made a mark in the sport of running. We cover the circumstances, timing, and situations that led them on this journey. Discover the keys to their success, what inspired them along the way, and gain insights into the minds of these exceptional individuals. Today, our guest is Melindy Elmore. I've been fortunate to work with Melindy very closely in the online private coaching game and at Arvida Coaching Clinics. She's an incredible parent, athlete, coach, and ambassador. Her athletic resume is ridiculous. She's an Olympic 1500 meter runner, 15 time Canadian medalist. She recently set a half marathon PR on the roads and won 11. And most notably, she shocked the road racing world with a 224.50 marathon in Houston, a new Canadian record. She's getting ready to turn 40. She has two young kids residing in Kelowna, British Columbia. Uh, Melinda is also an athletics coach in Canada and a VDOT coach on the app. This conversation is broken into two parts. In part one, we speak about managing during this time of crisis social distancing, parenting, and how to adjust training, communicate with your athletes during this time. We then dig into her story, starting with how she got hooked into running and competing. Here's part one. I hope you enjoy. Dan, so how are you guys doing up there? Uh, Good. I mean, we're in this similar situation to the U.S. I don't think, I don't know if it's as bad per se, but it's trending that way, and we're certainly under really strict um, guidelines as well of, you know, self-isolation and work from home and no social distancing and everything closed and canceled. So it's coming. Um, And then of course the, the also we've got lots of rebels too, who just don't really think that the rules apply to them. So people getting upset about that. Yep. So you're in Kelowna now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and how, so how are people reacting? So they're, the same situation you've got as a generally younger individuals who feel like they they're not really affected or is it the community still hasn't um, sort of grappled with what's what's about to come or what's happening because the, there's not how many cases are in your um, in your province and then also near Kelowna yeah um, it we're certainly we're certainly on the the upwards upward growth trend now we've got I don't know oh boy um enough yeah enough to be concerned about um and I don't actually keep up with the numbers because I get really upset when I know too much and that's like part of the balancing act is I know it's serious and I know what we need to do and I feel like that's kind of all I can control at the moment um but yeah they're saying that there are um, in BC, there are about 500 confirmed cases and 10 deaths, and um, it's it's sort of doing the the doubling every three days. So you start to see that that's going to become a a big concern pretty soon. Um, and we've got you know lower population density, and we're we're more spread out than a lot of places in the U.S. That has helped to this point, but. Um, I, I think it's just delayed things a little bit. Right, right. And then so you guys, 
what has it been like? Um, so at this point, you guys are sort of social distancing or you're still going outside, um, just trying to keep your distance. And, yeah. Um, what does your routine look like, well, especially with, with two young kids? It's funny because, you know, uh, we've been following this, my husband and I, for since it kind of hit China in January. And I think I said in about February, Tim, I don't know if the Olympics will happen, like the way this is going, mostly at that point, because it was so in so so prevalent in Asia. But now, of course, it's moved beyond that. Um, so we kind of had, I felt like we had a bit of a head start of thinking this is coming, where I think it caught a lot of people off guard in the last week, because in what day is today? Today's 23rd. We were supposed to be in California this week for spring break. <clears throat> and we decided the day we were flying yeah. out on March 12th that that was a bad idea. And I had to convince the airline and convince our Airbnb host they didn't get really money back but they were they were both kind of like oh really you're 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 canceling because of this i was like well mm. yeah i mean the the world health organization just declared a pandemic like i don't know mm. that it's a smart idea to go and then two days later it was like well that was obviously the right decision but <laughs> it seems still like we were being a little bit too conservative or cautious um yeah first i think that's the tragedy of the situation we've signed ourselves in yeah. now, especially in the States, is that I, mean, I think South Korea and the U.S. both had their first case around the same time in January. And, um, you know, it's it's just it's sad how much it sort of spread and people really didn't see it coming. Um, I remember I think it was sometime in February maybe it was early March when we were still having practices um, in New York and um, the CDC like put out this sort of ominous message, like prepare. It was something mm -hmm. along the lines of like prepare for major disruption to normal life. And everyone was just kind of, you could just feel the energy like in the running in central park at that time, this was still before, you know, people were, were stopping going to work, but it was coming mm, yes. very soon after that. And you could feel the energy. It was just, it just felt terrible. Um, and then, yeah, it's just, it's been so hard. We were fortunate because we got out of the city this, this past Sunday um, and just kind of saw the writing on the wall. And we, we were able to get to uh, a place here in Pennsylvania. That's to, to yeah, that's where you're from, crash. right? Yeah, so it's actually my mother-in-law's house, and um, we're right near. We're we're a couple blocks from from Lake Scranton. Right. Um, yeah, so it's it's um, it's a great setup because it's it's not it's pretty desolate and it's not too crowded, mm -hmm. um, you know, with walkers and joggers. So you're able to kind of keep your distance and and still exercise. Yeah. And um, but it's hard to stay off of um, you know my anxiety and heart rate keeps oh, going up every time I'm on social oh, yeah. media yeah. you know absolutely that's a it's so hard and with the kids you know you've got raising the kids and managing them and everything they're going through and, and um, so it's tough I mean how are you guys hanging in there with how old is is yeah Charlie now? He's yeah so old. Charlie's five and a half and Oliver is one and a half so Charlie okay. I knew, I knew before they made the announcement, the government made the announcement that we were on two week spring break uh, that started the end of March 13th. 
And I knew he wasn't going to be going back to school, but it, it took a few days for the government to make that announcement. Um, so, yeah, we're dealing with probably what everyone in North America is dealing with is like, how do you keep your kids from driving you crazy so you can get some work done? But also like still being a really good, attentive parent and, you know, trying to buckle down and really focus on what's important and and taking these, I guess, opportunities to really connect with your kids and family in a way that our busy lives and sometimes also, don't let us. But <laughs> Right. I mean, there's there's that's a silver yeah. lining. Right. But it's hard to do that when you're stressed out about like what's going to happen to the oh, economy, what's going to happen to the yeah. world. And yeah. So it's, that's, that's I know my son the, said to me a few knowledge. weeks ago, and again, this was before it all hit, but I was carefully watching things and listening to the radio one day. And I kept telling him to shush and he goes, mom, why are you so obsessed with this coronavirus? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and like well kiddo this this coronavirus is really gonna change our lives <laughs> you're obsessed mom. Stop. Oh, and then uh, we walked into a coffee shop just before i went to physio to grab you know a quick muffin on the way and he says super loud in like a five-year-old voice mom do you have the coronavirus like oh no don't oh, no. say that <laughs> Lucky for Oliver, he's like oh, he's oblivious so to oblivious. all of this. He's loving it. We're and... around all the time. <laughs> Although right. it's hard. And he's climbing out of the Oh, yeah, but now. it is hard because he does four days a week of daycare, which is the only way I can really get anything really done. And mm. he stopped napping because we're home all day and his brother's playing. And, oh, and he, you know, he's getting up in the middle of the night and he can get out of his crib. So he's just like, oh, yeah. It's party parties twenty four seven right now with everyone around. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, it's it's a roller coaster. I mean, we I went from like in the same day. You know, we we were out on the lake, and my daughter is a little bit older than yep. Charlie. Well, she's in second grade now, and um, we the lake here is about three and a half miles, and we did. Um, I'm always amazed at like what you can do run walking um with individuals that don't have much mm -hmm. running fitness and um so my my second grader we went right around the lake so it's about 3.7 awesome. miles and we did like two minutes run one minute walk and um her cousin was with her because we've both been um sort of quarantined mm -hmm. for over a yeah. week since we left new york and then once we felt like we were safe and not asymptomatic we we met to to do a run at the lake and um so they chatted and chatted and chatted and we kept it really slow and they went all around and it was just it was a beautiful moment of like when the two of them realized oh my gosh we went around this huge massive lake like we made it all the way back to the beginning they were like celebrating um they were so pumped and I can remember being in fifth or sixth grade, like going to the lake was one of my first runs. And I remember the moment of like, oh my gosh, this feels so long. <laughs> this is so far, you know? So as a second grader, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this could have like yes. a huge impact, you know? And then later that afternoon, like we're home and like they're being crazy and, and you, there's just a moment where like you yeah. tapped out and, as a parent, it's like, I've had enough. I can't hear them. Yes. Like they need to stop. They need to go to bed. And I'm like, up 
screaming like stop like yeah. enough the, night, the day's <laughs> yeah. over you i've know? given everything i can give today <laughs> yeah it's extreme extreme mm-hmm. highs and lows right now um so anyway um so how are you how are you training at the moment and what's is are you just is this a fitness maintaining fitness moment for you how are you balancing that home life and, and yeah it's, well it's home? interesting because my race of course was january 20th in houston so i've been off two months and i kind of took yep took probably four weeks of pretty light easy running cup you know first week off and then just kind of built back in so i had started to kind of get back into the rhythm of training and doing some workouts and, you know, getting my mileage back, not to marathon mileage by any means, but to a respectable level. And I was planning to do some races in April and May, like most people, some 10 Ks and halves. So sort of kind of getting prepped a bit for that. And then this comes along and um, everything's off the calendar for one thing. No idea what's happening with the Olympics. And, And like I said, I thought even in February that it was, it was looking to me like a pessimistic situation um so it's like what do you do and and for for me versus people that I coach it's maybe even two different approaches like we've I I've found it really hard to adapt to a new routine so far we're only a weekend but again like we were saying having the kids home all day having my husband home all day who has to actually work and I do too but I have I have more flexibility right he's he's sort of on office standard office hours and that's exhausting (laughs) and um, and so good so I've kind of hit a bit of a lull this week but I'm thinking that we can kind of get back into a bit of a routine and I've kind of drafted a bit of a schedule now for us moving forward because it just was so many unknowns and it's like what does this look like um so yeah so kind of going to like kind of base fitness stuff for a while there's no point in doing anything too race specific there's no point in risking injury from getting you know pushing the mileage or pushing yeah. intensity I don't need you know what I mean so it's like this is what would you do if you know you're not racing for five months right and that's your expectation because I I believe um obviously we're sort of we're in uncharted world chartered waters and um but that's i feel like i've been sort of a buzzkill for people around me and also some of my athletes yeah. where i'm like listen um i don't know if fall racing is on the table at this point um i don't know you know there were some people until very recently thinking okay oh, maybe yeah. this race in may you know i'm, I'm gonna train oh, i know i have like, kids oh. still thinking they're gonna have um, track seasons in april and may they're going ah oh. This is, I hate to yeah. burst your bubble, but this is not happening. Even if they haven't canceled it yet, it's, it's coming. Yeah. So, so then that brings up, you know, one of my next big questions, how are you communicating with your athletes at this time? And, and, and what's your message? I, I saw that you wrote, you know, something great on, on Instagram and it was control the controllable. Um, so talk a little bit about that, but also how, what's your message in terms of um, expectations and, and, and how they should be adjusting training. You touched mm-hmm. on that a little bit with yourself, but also. If you get yeah. So, more into that I mean, well. I think that 
the most important thing that we remember have to remember as coaches is that every person is going to react to this differently and everybody's going to be we're in it together but everyone has their own individual stresses and anxiety around how it impacts them specifically so um for some people business as usual and sticking to a pretty rigid uh structured training routine is what they need to keep their sense of normal and to keep them getting through the days and then i've had a few people who are just like you know what i need some I need some time away. Um, there's too much chaos in my life and I can't handle this right now of feeling like I need to train. So I think for, from a coach perspective, it's just supporting people and, and everything is okay. Whatever you need is what I can do for you. And if it's making sure that it's your workouts are, you know, challenging and to a certain extent, like obviously modifying them because of what we just said of the does don't need to be race specific. I'm not going to have someone train for a May marathon. Who's not doing a May marathon at this point, but I, it, we just have to be so, I think just compassionate and empathetic towards people and, and try and just say like, I'm another person who can be here for you to support you as best as I can. Right. Like people hopefully have friends and family as well. And yeah. I'm, their coach just another ear um but you know i've got people like who are doctors and nurses in the front line and boy that's the whole other level of stress that they're having to to face every day yeah i mean that's one of the reasons we left so my brother sent me an article um where it wasn't an epidemiologist but he was sort of breaking down the numbers we have a lot of data obviously from other countries and um some of his modeling was pretty straightforward and and it was just striking i didn't really sleep that night when he sent it because it was pretty clear that at the current rate of hospitalizations that you know the the hospitals are going to get overrun pretty quickly and and then from there it's you know who knows what happens it's not a pretty scene so um that was always pretty clear to me that that's what we were sort of fighting for and and it just hasn't been I don't know that that message has been I think it has now but it's still it's amazing how hard it is hopefully some of that social pressure like you said um, starts to kick in when people are thinking like oh um, yeah I'm gonna go out today and just get yeah I want coffee you know (laughs) and it's like no stay home stay home um you don't really it's hard to know and it's such such a dramatic change in our thinking right we're such social creatures we've got these ingrains these routines ingrained um we live in this great neighborhood on a cul-de-sac and the weather's been great and our next door neighbors are my son's best friends and their parents have been working home from home the last 10 days like none of us have really left our neighborhood and we haven't bought groceries in 10 days i haven't gone to a coffee shop we haven't gone to a playground yeah i haven't seen my parents who live down the street because they're you know high higher risk factors and that's killing them um so our kids mm. are still playing together because i feel like that's kind of a m- minimal risk that none of us have been exposed to anyone who's been had it we haven't traveled etc 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 but even that, I came in last night and was like, I felt guilty, you know, that I'm still letting my kid play with the two kids next door in the backyard and ride their bikes. And it's like, oh, mm. if, the, if, if that gets taken away, which it may, oh boy, it's going to be a super long haul because that's keeping my kids sane right now. 
and keeping us sane, being able to to kick sure. them outside yeah. for a couple hours and well then i think of you know people in apartments in yeah. in new york city or europe that don't even have that outlet and and how uh, just how challenging I that's got to be yeah no for sure so what about the what has athletics canada issued any guidelines in terms of um beyond like health um guidelines in terms of um you know from the government in terms of distancing and uh uh, but what about in terms of coaching and um i'm getting a lot of feedback in terms of um yeah you're not doing a marathon this spring so there's no need to go do long runs and maybe long you know very taxing workouts but but is there also what type of feedback have you gotten in terms of hey we want to help um stop the spread of this and keep people healthy um do are you shortening workouts under any guidance um you know no uh, not really i think what we're getting are are the messages that everyone's receiving about social distancing hand washing hygiene um obviously no travel like our borders are shut down so Mm -hmm. there was a lot of messaging around that when when we were shutting our borders um but you know we're allowed to still this is the the ambiguous part is we're illegally allowed to still gather in groups up to 50 which is a huge number um and i had i i'm just giving workouts to my university crew but i had three kids who went to the track and met together not with me the other day to do their workout and i got a message from a community member saying they shouldn't be doing that and blah 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 and so now i've got that awkward like gotta reach out hey guys you know people are watching us and um (laughs) But in terms of the physiological impact on their training, I, I think, again, like for a lot of people, just they still need to do something or else what is it like just sit on your butt all day long. Um, so I think, you know, some a healthy bout of exercise keeps you healthy, too. Right. And gets you outside. Um, so it, we don't really know. And, and hopefully. Hopefully um, oh, that that can remain we hopefully we can still have that amount of outlet continue yep yeah we talked i've talked with jack a little bit about that and um he his message was um you know like strides and uh, rep short repetition work where um or pickups right um yeah. Stuff that's short, not as taxing, right? Can, be, can actually be immune boosting, right? You don't want to get to the longer, um, heavy sessions, especially if you don't have to. And and then obviously the training might be a little bit less risky as well, right? In terms of totally repetitive stress injury. So that's great. And uh, so that's kind of how we're we're starting to shift things a little bit. And um, one thing that we haven't talked about. Um, that we quickly are pivoting to because of our situation is um, doing, we haven't gotten this out. So um, this, this will be whenever we publish this podcast, hopefully soon we'll, um, we will have started talking about it. But the, this idea of like a VDOT challenge, virtual right. racing um, concept and um, where there'll be some guidelines, obviously, but we're going to put up races every few weekends and it's it's really open up to you you know the distance and how you want to participate and 
Um, you could do anywhere from a mile up to a marathon if you wanted. Oh, cool. And we'll just score by VDOT. And yeah, so we're, we're going to have a lot of news um, and more information coming out on that. But um, just curious if you thought that would be, be nice for your athletes to at least have something fun and, and it sort of keeps. Um, yeah, well, it actually this, a platform I have yeah. used, I mean, related, not, not the same thing, but um, the goes like goes Zwift on my treadmill, um, of course, have challenges as well. And yeah. And I mean, these could actually be done together. You could be in a goes with race as well and have your VDOT score for this. So it would kind of be two challenges in one, but um, I know that some people are really pumped about it. And it's just, again, it just like gives you, gives you something to focus on and look forward to in a challenge. And, and it gives you a bit of social connection when you're all kind of doing it together. So I think these challenges right. will be fun and we have to be creative about how we do things right now. Yeah, no, of course. Um, all right, so I think I think it was important. As much as people are are inundated and they're already overwhelmed with with all the Corona um, talk and and news, um, I thought it was really important that we discuss, especially as parents and and how we're dealing with it. Um, many of our listeners are are in the same boat. So, um, but I, I do want to pivot now to um, you know so, sort of what we've been focused on. Um, in these interviews is really people who have been in the sport, you know, at such an early age and, and have stuck with it, whether they're now in some business, you know, revolving um, the sport or they're continuing to compete or they're coaching. Um, and we really want to get into sort of what were the factors that first led to your participation in the sport? Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about that and then build through sort of the, the, the timeline of, you know, you getting to set the, the Canadian record in the marathon, which is still mind blowing. <laughs> um, and I have so many questions. And um, so, but I want to step back and I've heard a little bit, fortunately, of your story, just from you presenting at the VDOT coaching clinics. Um, but I'm really curious to hear again, um what was that hook early on i forget if it's was it your parent was there a parent that ran or how did no run, uh, running my parents just really you? encouraged us to be active and healthy and put us in lots of sports but my first really really vague initial memories are actually of being four years old when joan benet samuelson won the uh, gold medal in la at the 1984 olympics and just, wow. I just felt like that was like yeah. a little, a little taste of, of how that would feel. And, uh, and, I, and, and then when I was older, I think, oh, there's no way that a four-year-old could be impacted by that. But then I had a four-year-old during the Piaochung Olympics, and he still talks about how he wants to be a snowboard <laughs> half-pipe athlete. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, you will be. That's awesome. <laughs> No, note to self, do not buy the child a snowboard. Um, not that it wouldn't be super cool for him to do it, but I, I as, a, as a mother, the high-risk sports of head injuries is what freaks me out. But anyways, running is fairly low risk that way. Um, so and then I just, just, I just gravitated towards running. So if the school was doing a, um, a we do Canada, Fist, Canada fitness testing in elementary school where you'd have to run a mile 
for me, that was the most important day of the year was winning the school mile race, right? And um, beating all the boys and uh, our little, our little like laps around the the gym or the schoolyard for warm up before PE was like I had to be the best. So I just kind of felt like just super pulled towards running and competing awesome. from an early age. And then, you know, over time, more formal opportunities for racing came along. And I went through a period where I, I didn't like racing because I put so much pressure on myself and I get really anxious and, and stressed out about it. So I had to kind of learn how to, how to deal with that through my kind of high school years after I'd had some success. And then I felt like, you know, I had to always be better, which a lot of people I think get in that trap if you run a PB or a PR and you have to do it every single week and that gets kind of stressful. Um, so yeah, by the end of sorry. yeah, it, it's similar similar oh. to Jack with his PE experience too. Like I think that was a catalyst for him. It was like a very structured PE, and he attributes a lot of his you know his introduction oh, yeah, to sure. athletics. And we had this to, great to track and field well. program in elementary school, just in the schoolyard, and you go through the different stations. You learn to kind of jump over high jump mats or <laughs> I was terrible at that shot put terrible at that <laughs> discus <laughs> terrible and then the running events Ooh, I like this <laughs> Ooh. okay we're gonna stop right there but there's more to come in our second conversation I want to thank Melindy for taking the time I love how she talked about expectations and race anxiety because this is a big part of our athletic journey and success story Next, we're going to dig into Melindy's transition to Stanford, her standout middle distance career to making the Olympics in the 1500 meters. From there, her story gets crazy, transitioning to the Ironman, then running one of the fastest female marathon finishes of the year. This is someone who would have laughed at the thought of even running a marathon early in her career. So I'm excited to dig in. Here's part two. One, the one thing that I wanted to kind of stick on for a moment here is the, you mentioned the stress and anxiety of competing. Mm -hmm. um, so if we can uh, like step back a little bit and focus on that, I, I feel like this, the stress and anxiety piece, right, kind of comes with the territory, but um, without jumping ahead, because I feel like from my understanding, this is something that... Um, is like a common, was a common theme, right? Mm -hmm. Throughout your career. Mm -hmm. And so I say it comes with the territory, but do you feel like this was a, was a uniquely more of a challenge for you as an athlete? And it started pretty early on. So I, I really did love to race, but I found that um, the more I raced and the, the better I performed, the more pressure myself. And I started to develop a lot of pre-race anxiety to the point where it started to kind of take the fun out of competing. Um, so I, for a few years in my teen years in high school, I kind of stepped back from competitive running and just focused on soccer and field hockey and team sports, but also figured out some strategies to try and help me um, not, not get so worked up about my races. And for the most part, it just came with a bit of a shift in perspective and realizing that my performances weren't the end all be all and that, my parents were still, no matter, no matter how I performed and that no one expected me to do uh, anything that I didn't want to do. I just, it was, it came from within. So I, I just had to remind myself I was choosing to do this for the fun of the sport. 
And the, the perspective changed. This is in, in high school. This is before college, right? You're saying your perspective, there was already that shift, that moment had to come yeah. before then, or you're saying over Yeah, time, no, right? I had this one particular moment where I was at the national championships in, uh, in Sherbrooke, Quebec with my, with my club coach and I was running the 1500 and it was, so it was like the U16 national championships. And I was, you know, favored to win. I had the fastest seed time coming in and I was literally paralyzed with fear the morning of the race. And I could not walk, like I couldn't talk or eat or felt like I couldn't function. And my coach told me to lie down on the grass in the pre-race area and just do some breathing exercises because I was just like shaky, wanted to throw up, was pale. Um, and I had actually a few experiences around that time of my life in grade 10, 11, where I collapsed in races in cross country races. Like I collapsed mid race and didn't finish. And so just, I just really like worked myself up to really quite a state. And, and then, yeah, exactly. I kind of had to give myself a talking to, I was like, if you, if, if I can't get this under control, then this isn't the right sport for me. And, and so, um, had to really like take a, a bit of a step back in order to appreciate that this was a sport. This was supposed to be fun. This wasn't supposed to send me into, into mm. this state. And there was no pressure. I mean, you it sounds like your parents were supportive. You didn't feel pressure to, Oh no, not at all. To win. No, my parents, it was just your natural competitive side that that put pressure on yourself yeah yeah I've always had really high expectations for my performances and always wanted to do really well Um, but my parents have been like honestly if you even ask them now what my personal bests are from high school or college or anything they wouldn't know they they mess it up all the time they're always just happy that if I'm happy right and at any point in my life if I stepped away from the sport they that would be fine with them they great parents and that's what they focused on um it was me yeah my my parents i think had driven like hundreds and hundreds of hours to different track meets of mine and probably run like 500 mile races and my there's no way my mom knows how many laps a, a mile. <laughs> i know me too <laughs> and it's so Wait, great laps? because it's just like oh they just love you they almost <laughs> How many laps four, Mom? It's the same four. <laughs> At least the fifteen hundred is even harder. Three and three quarters. I mean, who does that, right? So supportive. I used to get annoyed by that, but now I can appreciate like just how lucky I was that they literally came to almost all my meets. Yeah. You know, but uh, so that's cool. So then, so obviously, lots of success in. Um, before getting to college, you go to Stanford. So I'm just fast forwarding here. Um, you were obviously on an exceptional team. There are a lot of standout athletes um, who went on to do great things. Uh, just incredible program at the time. Did How much did that hurt? How much did that help, you know, putting yourself in that situation where it was so competitive on the team? Yeah, I mean, I came from sort of being a big fish in a small pond, if you will. And, you know, I'm in a, I'm from a small area in the interior of British Columbia and Canada. So it's not, our population of Canada is like the size of California. Um, 
And to go to a team that was, you know, on the top in the NCAA was definitely an eye opener, especially in a time when we didn't have social media or the internet to this nearly to the same extent. Well, we didn't have social media. <laughs> like we were just getting our own email addresses back then. Right. Um, so I was kind of clueless what other people did for training or for racing and results, like lived in your own little bubble, which there's some real perks to that. Um, so it was a big eye opener joining the team and having girls who ran, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles a week when I was, you know, I ran three times a week in high school and a long run for me was 60 minutes and suddenly a long run was 90 minutes. And just the kind of the intensity of the training was, was, um, a big jump from my high school program. Wow. So you were that much of a standout, um, in high school, but sometimes only running three times a week. Yeah. Cause I played a lot of soccer and field hockey and that's, I think, a big difference between the mm. Canadian system is that we don't really do high school track. We do club track and we only meet for workouts. And it's it's basically if you want to come, you come. You're not going to be kicked off the team if you don't show up for two weeks. You just join the club. And we really encourage our um, our high school athletes to really be involved in a lot of sports. So there isn't the same like sports specialization that there is, I think, in the in the states through the high school track program. Um which, you know, I think means in, in many ways that we're kind of a little bit, a little bit greener when we kind of progress to the next level. Yeah, I was going to say, do you, you do you prefer that model um, for everyone? I am a big advocate of keeping kids in, in multiple sports as long as possible. I think that we're, our society is tending to force specialization too early and making kids choose. And I don't see why I year round six or seven days a week uh, when they're 13 years old. Um, and I think it's really good to develop athletic ability and uh, even just like team values from being on a different team. Um, so I really, to me, that was a good thing. And it's something like as a coach here, um, as a club coach here, I definitely support my athletes to be playing basketball and soccer, doing triathlon and swimming. And most of my kids are multi-sport athletes and we work around that. Mm. Do you think that, um, I mean, did, did that also contribute maybe to you and Graham getting into triathlons or is that an, a whole nother story? It may. I mean, Graham was very similar to me. He, he grew up in Canada as a multi-sport athlete playing soccer and volleyball and cross country skiing. And we both didn't specialize in specifically in running until uh, really our late teens and into college. And I mean, he went to Arkansas and had a really similar experience where the first, his first practice, it was an eight mile run. And he looked at his like eight miles. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm going home. <laughs> I quit. And, you know, he had an Olympic team when he was 19 years old at the, uh, the I don't know, his sophomore year of college, like, um, but we both had a lot of kind of, I'd say secret training almost just through our sport background, having played other sports. We just hadn't been running eight miles straight. We've been doing it in this, in, inside a soccer game. Right. That's so cool. So we, I think you've heard Jack Daniels talk about, uh, his, the early influence for him, which kind of started it all was the PE program at Sequoia high school in Palo Alto where Jack went, um, they had like this whole structured program where it was scored. There was like 10 different events, scoring system. You would, would, you would advance to different. Oh, that's shorts. so awesome. 
<laughs> if you reached a certain level and all the kids were motivated to get the yes. gold shorts and it didn't matter what grade you were in. It was just, you kept advancing based on your points. And um, there were three Olympians in his class, um, uh, just in his wow, class amazing. alone. I think there were three Olympians. And so Jack ends up, good, you know, getting two medals in the modern pentathlon. So it just kind of shows you that another multi-sport um, event. And that, that was similar, you know, in terms of their PE and background. So yeah, I, I mean, like our sport uh -huh. hero, Wayne Gretzky is a huge advocate of multiple sport and uh, multi-sport athletes and not specializing in one sport year round. So he was actually a really great baseball player in the off season he didn't play hockey year round until he was you know at a, an elite level and now we see kids at five years old in full year intense hockey programs in Canada and it's like if you you miss the boat if you're not in hockey by five because you're just you know wow it's like this it's like the Tiger Woods effect almost I didn't know about that about Gretzky that's yeah yeah research him a little bit I mean he's he's a, an amazing athlete anyway so he probably <laughs> he probably is a bit of an outlier <laughs> yeah right um okay cool so then Stanford how much did so your coach at the time writing workouts was Vin yes. Manna right how much did what, did the training adapt or was it really like, this is what we're doing today. You guys are all um, exceptional athletes and we're going out and doing the same workouts. Was there any individualization or, or no? I had a rough transition to, yeah, to Stanford, partly from my high school background. And then I had four subsequent back-to-back -back stress fractures my first two years, just kind of overuse. And then when I finally was healthy enough to run with the team, um, I really identified strongly with being an 815 runner, a middle distance runner. And my, the strength of the team was a distance program. Um, the girls on the team were 5K, 10K type athletes. And we generally did the same workouts, but they were really hard for me. So I felt like doing a tempo run with the girls was like, like scrape me off the ground at the, at the end, I was dead. I, I couldn't run a tempo run controlled. And, um, you know, my meat and potatoes mm. back then would be like do five times 300 as fast as possible with a ton of rest. And that's what I really thrived on doing. Um, and I didn't understand the purpose of the longer workouts. So I didn't always buy into them. Um, I think they did set me up for success long-term, but I don't think that they worked for me at the time and that there were, that they necessarily um, gave me the confidence that I needed that I was doing the right thing always. So you you naturally gravitated more to the speed. It wasn't more I needed to stick to middle distance to stay healthy. You just felt like at that time you were you were a faster runner. You had more turnover than um, you were stronger. Yeah, kind of both. Distances. I loved running fast. I really loved just seeing how fast I could run in like hot day on the track and, you know, just give her um, sub 60 second quarters. That stuff is just super fun. Right, that would kill me now, of course. But um, back in the day that I really thrived mm -hmm. on that. Um, but I also, like you say, because of my injury background, my mileage was super limited. So for example, there was a period of time when my warm-ups were actually done jogging on place on the high jump mats because we were trying to <laughs> control how much mileage I did. So yeah. I would warm up on the mats, do a race or a workout and cool down on the mats. So I was running like 10 miles a week at a period of time just because I had all these 
stress fracture injuries. So I didn't have the aerobic foundation to be able to do move into temple runs with, with, you know, the best runners in the country. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Um, so, okay. So Stanford, you have, you've got a bunch of injuries early on. You still end up having lots of success. So, I mean, just quickly, what were the high notes at Stanford? I know 800 school record have to be, has to be one of them, right? What, what were the, some of the other high marks? You know, there? I never felt like I got out of that. I, I achieved my t- potential at Stanford. I did set that 800 and the 1500 meter school records at the end of my fifth year. Um, and, but Unfortunately, it was sort of it felt like a little bit too late. Almost, it was like my last meets in both the eight and the fifteen. Um, so those those were those were good. Mm. Um, and I was we our team came second my last year at NCAA cross country championships. And I think I told you once how they actually declared that we our team had won. They had announced that we had won when we finished, and then there was a, a recount. And BYU actually had just, they had missed a BYU runner in the, in the uh, scoring. So we actually came second to BYU, but we had celebrated for 20 minutes first thinking we had won. And then, oh, recount. It was, <laughs> but I mean. Uh, I don't remember that. I don't remember that at all. It's 2002. Um, so wait, it was a good 20 minutes, you guys thought? But I mean. Yeah. That would, that would have been, have been your been senior year. Yeah. Year. Well, I mean, yeah. you probably weren't really paying attention to the women's race if you were running your own race. <laughs> And it was, it was only twenty minutes though too. Like it wasn't like, it was for no, half a day no. or the day. Yeah. It was like, it was, yeah. So it was roughly about twenty minutes. Yeah. You guys are literally yeah. Yeah. jumping yeah. up and down. Screaming. So we had at the team on the team we had Alicia. Uh, uh, she went by Alicia Craig. Sorry, at the time I was trying to remember her maiden name. Alicia Craig, Lauren Fleshman, Sarah Bay at the time. Now Sarah Hall me and uh, and we had just a super super team but um lauren and i graduated that year so we were done so that was our last chance and then the next year they actually won the title but we weren't on the team that year got it okay um so talk a little bit about transition after stanford you go to canada and you connect with your coach from high school yeah. right so i had always gone coach? back uh, during this summer from breaks from university to my club coach, who is also my high school coach had kind of plunked me off the field hockey field when I was 13 and said, you need to be on the team. Um, and I had always gone back to him and I'd actually run some of my best times in the summer when I transitioned back to his program, which was a bit more of the speed endurance, eight fifteen middle distance kind of work. So I figured that I would, um, take a leap of faith and move to Calgary where he lived. And of course I was, off the bank of mom and dad at that time and had to figure out how to pay for life. And so I figured the best thing to do would to be go back to school and get a master's degree so that mostly so that I'd have access to student loans <laughs> to fund my running addiction. <laughs> and Mike is his name, the coach and his wife, Brenda were super gracious and they invited me to stay in their house um, in their spare room. And I lived with them for maybe 14 or 15 months and while I was a student and while I um, trained for the Olympics. So I graduated in 2003 from Stanford and in 2004, I did make the Olympic team to compete in Athens. 
What was training like in Calgary? Oh, was well, it, Mike it, told me when I moved there, been... you might not get faster, but you'll definitely get tougher. <laughs> and it snowed the day I moved yeah, there in September and it snowed in June as well. Um, so, I mean, it's a great oh, city, but it gets really inclement weather through the year and it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful, but you can't count on the weather staying the same for more than about two hours. Wow. So you made the yep. Olympics training in Calgary. Yep. Unbelievable. Yeah, you so got he was tough. right. Yep. You got tough. Um, how much did training differ from Stanford? And, well, and you know, I was, when I was at Stanford, I was, I often questioned what I was doing and why I didn't understand the purpose of my training. And I think that is so key for athletes to understand. I think that a lot of the work that we did there um, laid the foundation. So those tempo runs and the aerobic kind of work that I was able to do by my fifth year after I was health from my injuries. And then we were just able to build on that my next year. And I had I had had two solid years of no injuries, of consistent training, and really that is that is gold for an athlete, right? So just kind of came together. But what what do you what what do you attribute to staying healthy at that point? Was it just building on that consistency for a while, or were were there changes? Just strength, um, cross training. Um, you know, easy pace, um, different style of you know, backing off different types of workouts? You know, I would say the biggest change was actually, actually the lifestyle change. So my first four years at Stanford, I lived in dorms. Dorms are a really fun place to live, but they are not very conducive to an athlete lifestyle often. So I stayed up too late. <laughs> I didn't eat well enough. I was too social. And, you know, like it's fine when you're young, it's fun, but it's not conducive to um, to running fast. And when you look now, you know, as a, as an adult, uh, I know that I wasn't getting enough sleep and I wasn't paying enough attention to eating well. So once I moved out of dorms, my fifth year into a rented house with some other girls on the team were really, they were doing their masters and their PhD studies at that point. We were all really serious. The light that down at nine, we went to bed, you know, we cooked home meals um, and then I continued that the following year, living with my coach and his wife, we had home cooked meals and I slept and I got my rest and I, I managed my time better. Um, I think that was the, the, really the biggest change and the most important factor. I love that. I'm always like looking for like, what was it? What was it? The secret cross training or nutrition or like secret workouts or you change this. And so often I get that, like it's, it was just environment, I think. And, um, that says a lot. Well, they, they say like the most that. important recovery so, uh, modality that you can employ is nine, eight, nine, ten hours of sleep a night. You just can't, you can't fudge that, right? That's when your body regenerates. Mm. That's when, when your body heals and repairs and gets stronger and absorbs the work that you've done. And if you're going on chronically on six or seven hours of interrupted sleep, you're not, you're not reaping the benefits of the work you put in. So Calgary, it's cold. It's socially <laughs> crushing um but it makes you exactly and helps you make the olympics <laughs> yeah and i wouldn't trade it for trade-offs in life so okay so your track and field career is obviously incredibly decorated the Olymp you qualify for the olympics you're an olympian 15-time canadian medalist do you um track and field is over and you you 
then somehow get into triathlons, right? So I, I want to just kind of skip forward into how did that come about? Um, you were track I, and field. Yeah, for I what? retired in 2012. So when you were young, I mean, I started probably. Yeah. I started university when I was in 1998. So that's 14 years of university and post-collegiate. And was that hard to step away or did you feel like that was it? Um, I know you kind of, you finished on, Mm -hmm. on a high note, right? Didn't you win, you won Canadian nationals and then they have the Mm -hmm. weird qualifying um, factor. Mm -hmm. And so you don't make the Olympics another time, but. Yeah. So yeah, I won't go into details, but I didn't make the 2008 or the 2012 Olympic teams, despite having the IAAF standards and being selectable to go. But Canada had really stringent requirements for selection to make the team. So I stepped away in 2012, feeling really kind of burnt out and disappointed with the with the way with what I had put in and what I had kind of been able to get out of it. Um, And I desperately just needed a break from running and intensity of of track so I had no plans to get into triathlon actually Graham had started doing it for fun and I just would go along to races with him and um cheer him on and thought it was cool and then I started riding a bike because that's what he did so we would ride together and then he signed me up for a triathlon kind of on a whim Mm. he thought I was a pretty strong cyclist and I'd do well at it and um I came second overall in the race and the only person who beat me was a pro and I thought, oh, well, I might as well get my pro card then because <laughs> I think I could try be- to beat her. <laughs> and so I took my pro card and then started a couple years of pretty serious racing and competing in triathlon. Oh, but actually, sorry. In the meantime, I had a baby. I hate to gloss over that part because he's important to the story. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Charlie. Uh, um, okay, so mm-hmm. it, was, it was kind of like a challenge. Yeah. Like, let's and just like loving training and racing yeah. and being active and but, stuff, but still fun. Yeah. So you really you enjoyed the training at first, or this is really before you got into. Oh yeah, I always loved the training because well. you get to run and bike and swim, and, I, and it was cool to change it up from just straight up running, right? To have different challenges, and I was a very good swimmer, so learning to swim properly was something that I could really sink my teeth into. Yeah, and Kelowna yeah. was where you were doing most of this training, yeah. right? Yeah, it's great. It's a it's great place conducive. to train. Um, so the biggest challenge is, so in the triathlon, you end up running your first marathon mm-hmm. in your first Ironman, correct? Like technically the first 26.2 you run is in the Ironman. Um, but so before you get to the decision or I, I guess I should ask, um, what was or led you to decide, like, I want to pursue? Well, I had done like, a it, whole number of half Ironman races, maybe 12 in the, in the preceding two years. And I had a coach, um, his name is Matt Dixon of Purple Patch mm-hmm. Fitness based in San Francisco. And he's, he was a great coach. He really helped develop me from being, you know, a pretty, pretty raw triathlete to being good. Um, and he just told me one day in August, he's like, after I'd had my kind of season break, I'd done my last race. He's like, and now he has a British accent, so I won't try to imitate him because I won't do it right. But he's like, and now we're training for an Ironman. <laughs> and he just, he just kind of decided. And he said, you are doing <laughs> Arizona Ironman in November. And I was pretty excited by that. Cause I kind of always wanted to give it a try. Cause I thought, well, the, my best 
discipline in this sport is running. So why not do the event with the longest run, even proportionate to the other events? But we're so I'm I'm a little <laughs> bit baffled because we just not too long ago <laughs> talked about like getting scraped off the floor. Yeah. So after a tempo run of probably like eight miles, a tempo run, and then now we're like. I've always wanted to do a marathon. Uh, like this sounds so, so nice. It doesn't sound nice to me. Um, so yeah, how did that, where did that come from? What, how did that switch come about? Was it just maturity? And, and, and I think you talked about this, right? Like the expectations, right? It was that part of it just in the sense of wanting to explore, like this was fun to you. I've embraced the idea, like you say, of challenge, of thinking something is exciting, of this uh, doing something I didn't think was possible in my prior life. So, of course, as a 20-year-old, I never would believe that I would become a competitive Ironman or a competitive marathon runner. That would have just, like, I can't, I would love to go back and talk to my old self about that, where I'm at now. (laughs) But but over the years, I think I've just come to love (laughs) that I love a challenge. I love training. I love moving my body. I love towing the line and seeing what I've got on the day. And then Matt was really great because he just said to me before my race in Arizona, he said, no expectations is not the same as low expectations. So basically in, in our interpretation of that is like, go out and execute a great race, be smart, be patient, do things well, and you will perform well. It'll come together. Instead of thinking, I have to break nine hours, I have to qualify for Kona, I have to win this race, it's, it, start, it shifts the mindset to being really more process-oriented and something that you can control and that is less intimidating when you're when you're approaching these huge races. Hmm. So you end up running, I think, believe eight fifty seven, yes. right, is your debut, and that was in Arizona. And what is the stat, or is there one? Maybe I misread. Um, is it considered one of the the fastest debuts overall? No, I think it's one of the fastest your, overall. Your marathon split debuts, and then yeah, and it's I think it might be about the fourth fastest Canadian. Our women's Ironman time, but a few people have done them since, and I haven't really kept track. Okay. So sub nine, and for the non-triathletes listening, sub nine hours is is legit. <laughs> That's like to break nine. Is yeah, that it was really, it was cool. I, I had thought I had found my event when I did that race, um, and I loved it, and I had an amazing day, and it was so fun. And I finished, and I enjoyed the training, and I enjoyed the racing, and I finished feeling so good about it. Um, and that was in November. And then I did my next Ironman in April. So four months later, and it, it didn't go nearly as well. It was a really, really tough day at the office for a number of reasons. Um, and I, it wasn't actually at that time that I decided to quit triathlon, but I got pregnant and with my second kid. And that was a huge goal of ours was to actually, you know, have another kid. I was 38. Time was, time was clicking, you know, Mm -hmm. um, And after he was born, I decided I couldn't handle the load, the training load and the time commitment away from the family to do Ironman at the level I wanted to do it. So I was kind of ready to move on from competitive sport again at that point. At that point. Well, Oliver was born in June of 2018. So I just had no plans postpartum. I wasn't in a rush to get Mm -hmm. fit. A lot of people trained through their pregnancies. I didn't. I was happy to just kick back and relax and have a break and spend more time with my other kid. Um, and then, you know, through the summer after he was born, I, again, wasn't rushing getting back fit, which I think was a bit of a blessing in disguise, because I think if I'd had a target that I wanted to do 
jump into marathon racing, then it probably would have pushed my body too hard too soon. And it, it may not have worked out the way it ended up working out. Mm. So you got faster on that, the third leg. Um, and after you did 257 in your head, were you curious at that point? Um, what um, you could do for a full marathon? It wasn't not, honestly, it wasn't on my radar. It wasn't, it wasn't until on September. Your radar just yet. Um, in 2018. So Oliver was about three months old and I was just slogging through an easy run in the forest with my husband. And I just, I, I attribute it to having had too many cups of coffee in the morning because I had too much energy. And I was like, you know, I should just do a marathon. And Graham said immediately, that's a great idea. And we got home and he looked up the race calendar and was like, Houston, Houston's in four months. I think we could have you ready for Houston. And so he just picked the race and wrote me a training plan. And we're like, okay, cool. This is like a new challenge again. <laughs> so I wish you the best here over the next few months. Stay safe. Um, and we look forward to seeing the next time you do get an on, into a marathon, I thought 224. I mean, I'm, well, I won't tell you I'm my cool new number. That, I'll, I'll just wait to actually do it on the, <laughs> in the race. You got. But you're, you're, I can't handle it. No, I can't handle it. Um, but I'm excited to, to see. I, I, well, I you know what? You just you get that United like States whipped so back into shape so we can, can all uh, all go to races again and travel and then go back to what we enjoyed doing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Okay. I, yeah. I'll get back to you on yeah, that. Yeah, you too. We, we got more to do. Um, okay, so great. You guys hang Thanks tight so there, much, and we'll, I'll, I'll follow. I've been over here. I've been over here.